Terry Ragsdale and Michelle Ragsdale, legendary names in our sport and have been a part of archery for many years and have left our sport for some good reasons. And we'll talk about some of those. But today, it's my privilege to have Terry Ragsdale on this Easton Target Archery podcast, this special edition, uh, Legends of Archery, uh, that we've been doing for some time now. And um, I'm going to start out by just listing some of Terry's accomplishments. Uh, in 1975, Terry was the youngest man ever to win an amateur national title at the age of uh, 16 uh, and has countless NFAA amateur national titles over the years. Um, he shot the first perfect score in Vegas in 1985, perfect 900. Shot the only two 1200 perfects ever, um, the first two times the Vegas face was used. Uh, also shot perfect scores at Cobo Hall and Las Vegas in 1978. He's the first man to defend his Vegas championship. He was also a member of the World Archery Team for the United States. Um, many other records, including a FIDA world record. The only person to shoot an official 560 outdoors in 1995. And um, Terry, it is my privilege to have you on today. Well, gosh, George, it's my privilege to be here. And after that wonderful introduction, I'm too flustered. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was a we had a good time. It was a good run. So. Uh, good run. That's that's understating things, sir. And uh, I just I'm I'm just happy to be uh, able to talk to you today. And uh, I know Michelle has been busy continuing her work on the front lines of healthcare uh, throughout this entire situation. We'll talk about some of that a little bit. But uh, let's start out with uh, young Terry Ragsdale uh, starting out in archery uh, back in Texas, if I'm not mistaken. 1966. Tell us about that a little bit. George, like, like, like most of us, we were at our house, we were so blessed to have wonderfully supportive parents that spent a, had to be a couple of small fortunes hauling all of us around to archery events, all, mostly in the South, but, but yeah, that expanded and we went to some of the, the national events. My, uh, Mom was a wonderful stay-at-home mother, and my dad worked two jobs and worked his tail off, and he was a super mechanic, and he was a super archery mechanic, so he was and certainly- An outstanding coach as well, Robert Ragsdale, a legendary coach, absolutely. So that's how we got our start, and you know, so we, we shot basically- we had an opportunity to compete just about every weekend during the, the when the tournaments were occurring. And growing up in the South, I'm telling you what, if you want a, a place where you're going to learn to eat humble pie in large doses, that was a good place to shoot. Because I mean, there was guys like Bobby Hunt and Keith Stewart. I mean, some really top shooters. And uh, to win the first tournament, first time I ever won the Texas State Championship. I won it in the pro division when I was 18, I think. So I got, I got taught a lot of lessons about how to be a reasonably good loser. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's something that um, a lot of uh, top shooters that I've spoken to have in common is that you have to learn to lose before you can learn to win. Um, Dave Cousins just recently said exactly that. And I think that it's a lesson that all of us have had to learn at some point. But, uh, you know, think about that process of, of losing before you win. 
the stick that it takes. Um, how did you get from, from Texas to national and then international? Uh, gradual process? Well, it, it was gradual. It was, it seemed long, but, you know, at that time, you know, I had started shooting events with our family when I was like seven or eight shooting in the youth division, that kind of stuff. But I went to, I think it was in 75. That's when I, that's when they still had the open division, which was still pretty strong. And then the pro division was just starting. And I was still a senior in high school. So the, the pro division wasn't yet an option or didn't seem to be. But anyway, we drove from, my folks loaded us up and we drove from White Oak, Texas, which is East Texas, to Jay, Vermont, which is about 24 inches on a map. And that's where I was fortunate. I won the Open and at that time it broke the record that legend Bobby Hunt had set. And that's where I had actually been introduced and signed a contract to shoot for Pete. Remember sitting in Pete's motorhome with with Pete and George Chapman, and I felt like Tiger Woods. It's like, you know, when I left there with a contract, where they were actually going to give me two bows and arrows. <laughs> no one, no one would ever give me anything. So, and just uh, just so that our listeners understand, it's Pete Shepley that you're talking about, the legendary archery innovator from Arizona, uh, you know, formerly from uh, Illinois. And, uh, and he is the person who helped make your career and Michelle's career to a degree, I think. Um, you know, he was a great supporter of yours over the years. Without question. And uh, so here's young Terry Ragsdale, uh, like you said, feeling like Tiger Woods getting a contract and, and uh, making your mark on the national level for the first time. Yeah, that was, that was all the resemblance to Tiger Woods that I ever had was right there. <laughs> well, in a lot of ways, I mean, you know, um, when you consider your body of work, I would say that you've done some things that even Mr. Woods hasn't accomplished, but we'll, we'll get to some of that. You know, the, the, the lifestyle of archery was kind of a, double-edged sword for both you and Michelle. Uh, all the travel was maybe some of the hardest aspect of it, I suppose. You know, you know the travel was, and, and I never wanted to make it sound like, oh, poor us, we have to travel all over the place. I mean, oh, I, no, by I, no means. I meet people like, like you do. I meet people on a daily basis that's never been out of the state they live in. So the fact, I, I, it was hard to whine about having to go shoot all over the U.S. and Europe can do it on somebody else's dime. Sure. So, yeah. So I, it, we, we had a, we have a lot of fun travel stories, but for the most part, it was really enjoyable. And we're very appreciative of everyone's efforts to help us do that. Talk about some of the tournaments that you enjoyed the most. Um, you know, anybody that knows you knows that Reading was one of the special ones for you. Maybe talk about that a little bit from the standpoint of what you enjoyed about uh, shooting Reading. Well, you know, the, the fun thing about for those to have shot the Reading tournament, you know, the Reading is, a, you know, they, they did a combination of the known distance dot shooting with 3D targets. So, you know, Reading's a beautiful area. The club is very well run. 
well-maintained. It's just a fun place to go. And, you know, the shots, first time I went out there, it's like, wait a minute, you shoot shots as short as like five yards. But you also shoot out to 102 yards. But you're shooting two arrows per target at a known distance at a round uniform aiming dot. And the first time I went, I didn't really know a whole lot about it. And I was fortunate enough to win, I think. And, dang, made pretty good money there. And that wasn't what kept us coming back. What kept us coming back was the people in that club were just amazing. They were so amazing that we, even though we lived in Tucson, we joined their club just to support the club. So that was always one of our favorite ones to shoot. But there were so many that were fun. I mean, we always, as a as a family, enjoyed going to shoot in the Big Sky Tournament in Grand Junction. Oh, yeah. We would drive up through, you know, northern Arizona and Colorado, and the kids enjoyed it. So got to go a lot of fun places. Yeah, it's a beautiful countryside on your way there. And uh, some of those places that, uh, that we get to shoot uh, back in those days, I mean, you know, it was, uh, it was very special to be able to uh, get to those places and also see those people that we would see. You know, every year you get to Vegas, uh, you still see some of the same people. I, you know, just, just got back from Vegas this past couple of days and got to see some of the same folks that you know and that I know. And um, it was a very special thing to be able to, to do those things. And um, it was one of the motivating factors, I think, for getting past that sort of competition grind feeling that you might get if you're going to a lot of events. Well, I hope that our, that our country returns to some semblance of normalcy next year. Kelly and I planned that we were going to go to Vegas this last year. We wanted to go, certainly not taking any art trip, but we wanted to go see all the, a lot of the people we haven't seen in forever. Right. And I tell you what, also after watching the performance of guys like Kyle Douglas, it's like that just reinforces the wisdom of retiring what I did. <laughs> well, I would I would say that uh, if you took Terry Ragsdale of 20 years ago and put him in the middle of the field right now, he'd be just as competitive as a Kyle or uh, a Steve Anderson or some of the other folks that that were in that, um, your form back then is applicable today, I think. And, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about aspects of your shooting, but, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly, uh, I think heartening to see, uh, how many top competitive scores we saw in Vegas, uh, after so many people had to have so much time off. You know, George, I'm sure at some point in time, hopefully we'll get to it, but I have, I have got to, I hope I don't butcher this name, Lico Areola. Yeah. How about that score? <laughs> she shot a 900. She's 13 years old and she has, <laughs> she has the bearing of a 40 year old from the standpoint of her mental game. It's really amazing to watch her shoot. She shot a 900 there. She shot a 900 at, uh, at the Rushmore Rumble. I'm not sure about something before that. And it's like, she's 13 years old. She ain't going to be driving a car for two or three more years. Yeah. But she's, <laughs> she's right up there with any of the top women. And, you know, there's only so many women that have shot a 900 in Vegas, you know, Sarah Lopez, um, uh, Mary Zorn, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a rare thing. And she's, she's got a great set of parents and uh, she seems to be, just a very nice, if, if a bit shy, as you might expect from a 13-year-old, you know. You know, at, at 13, I'm sure her, 
her personality is is already pretty much concreted. So she'll, I think, stay leveled. But you know, it's good to see people like that. I think of things like Cal Douglas and Jesse Broadwater. Just I know there's more, but some of the guys that have done really, really well, but seem still so humble and don't get all fucked up with conceit and don't get too full of themselves. And that's what's yeah, for sure. You just named two that are that way, and, and you're certainly that way yourself. Um, but, yeah, but you know, think about Jesse Broadwater. You know, he's so he's so stable and and just pleasant to be around all the time. I shot the Nationals. I think my my dates are so bad, but I think it was in '95 when we shot in Wausau, Wisconsin. And it was one of those, you know, the NFA Nationals, five days long, and most of the time I really look forward to going to those, but I was, it seemed like that year I was a little bit on the burnout side and it was like, man, I'm not looking forward to going and doing this. And I shot the first day, I shot pretty marginal, but the second day I shot it for some reason, I have no idea. Or third day I shot a 560 on the hunter round. Yeah. There was a, there was a little, sounds derogatory, it was not, there was a little boy there named Jesse Broadwater that shot a 560 also. And so they took our pictures. <laughs> sitting together and i think after that i think i think he shot 560s several more times before the week was out but i remember telling my sweetheart on the way back to the hotel i said that young man back there i says if he doesn't discover skateboarding or something i said the rest of the pro men need to hire the gypsies to have him kidnapped because i said he's gonna he's gonna be a giant killer you sure called that one right you only talk to him a few times. I, I, I don't talk to him as much as I, he, he's just such a humble, quiet champion. And that's what people really, I think people really root for. I do. Yeah, you're quite right. He hasn't changed a bit either. Um, you know, he's been that way for as long as I've known him, which is uh, a little later than you, probably 98 is maybe the first time I met him. And I would say that he has not changed a bit in terms of his demeanor. Some others, you know, that come to mind are, you know, people like Kyle Douglas today, he's very similar in that regard. You know, very, uh, very talked, good guy. I talked to Kyle a few times. I sent him a couple of messages and he, he called and he has, he's, you know, my buddy Jake from Jake's High Country out in Orem, he knows Kyle. He's, he, he told me, because he he's a real deal. He says yeah, I got to, I got to see Jake, by the way. That was his 55th Vegas. <laughs> yeah, he's quite the guy too. So. Just an amazing guy. You know, he was the last person to win Vegas with a recurve bow. You know, George, I grew up in archery stuff when the when the archery magazine came in each month. You know, our house was full of people that shot bows, but I always would somehow hijack that thing from the mailbox when it would come in. And I would read that thing front to back. And in a day or two, I could tell you who won every tournament, what the record scores were, and what was going on. I remember the picture. Jake standing there with his recurve when he had won to Vegas. So yeah, he's been a lifelong super friend, great guy. Him and Karen yeah. both. So, you know, obviously the best thing about the sport, I think you and I share this point of view, is the friends that we've made over the years and uh, sure. the times that we've, you know, been able to see those people and spend time with them. Uh, the state of archery today is uh, has some differences. And one of those differences is you see a lot more youth participation uh, than, than there used to be. And uh, with that, there's a lot of younger shooters who are trying to make their mark. Do you have any advice for people like that who are in a position that you were in back in the 60s 
but in today's society. Well, that's kind of a tough one, George. You know, the, the thing, yeah, I just look, reflect back on, on my game. You know, I, I didn't pursue archery with the intent of really, I don't think ever doing it on a professional level. I just did it as a, you know, my dad always taught us, you know, you, you're not shooting against all those other guys that are out here. You're shooting against the round. You're shooting against the target. And it was always a push to see just how good you can shoot. And I remember back before the NFA adopted that new target, which must have been about 75 or 6 or 7, whenever it was, whenever the target face changed. I remember somebody saying, man, no one will ever shoot a 560 on this. Mm. And that was just one of those things that was like, yeah, hey, I agree. But it was always something to strive for and to try to improve your game and to, you know, it was, it was pretty easy to shoot a decent score in the old days on the old target because of the size of the higher scoring ring. But boy, I tell you, then it got to the point now where, you know, when you've really got your game on and you've got a good round going, it's very evident. So, you know, I would just encourage those young shooters again, just to, you know, keep, keep polishing their game. And if it's something they want to try to pursue it, it, to a point where they're representing someone, just to remember all the time that you are representing someone. You're not a, you're not a high-paid celebrity. You're someone that's supposed to be reflecting back on the company that you're representing. So you want to do that in a professional manner. You want to do it with a professional appearance. You want to be polite to people. You don't want to be, you know, you're going to have really good days. And those good days, you have to be a humble winner. And on those bad days, you got to be a, pretty good loser too so one of the highlights of um watching you shoot was back in victoria uh australia uh back in uh, i think it was 85 can you recount for us a couple of uh, maybe some of your favorite trips that you may have taken any favorites in all of that you know the tournament that we shot the, the world target in france was a really fun event when i, when I think about ones that we did overseas that were like, you know, what one really popped up. The one who came up was 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 certainly far from glamorous. And most people would be like, why would you even bring that one up? <laughs> Michelle and I shot the uh, the IFA World uh, Field Championship was in some place up in New South Wales, Australia. And at that time, I think they were doing the World Championship it was every two years. And it was about a year before the event was coming up and Pete asked about us going to shoot that. And it's like, we can't go. We're not going to go shoot that tournament. It's time because we had our little girl was Jill was about four and Dan was not even, I'm not sure he was hardly, hardly walking. And he goes, well, it's really important that you guys go. So we made arrangements and we went and shot that tournament. We flew into Sydney we had to drive like six or seven hours up the coast, up to New South Wales. And when we landed, it was raining harder than I've ever seen rain come down. And here we have all of our equipment, you know, because we got two people shooting and we got two bows. We had a lot of stuff. And we had two little persons with us. And we drove the whole time up there. It took us about eight hours to get there. And we never turned our windshield wipers 
off of high. And we got to the tournament venue. I think the next day it cleared up a little bit, so we went and checked marks. But we noticed that everybody there was wearing like knee boots or hip boots. And out on the ranges, the ranges were so muddy and the leeches were so thick out in the middle. Oh. They'll oh. reach out. And at the end of the day, it was you looked like you'd been at a mud wrestling competition. And I did do that for five days. So, you know, sometimes it seemed like it was all glamorous, all wear your white clothes, go stand out on a perfectly manicured lawn and shoot your arrows. And I said, some days it was not that glamorous. But that was the one that really stuck out because it was, it ended up being a mostly fun trip. But anyway, it was an adventure. Absolutely. Terry, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your mental game um, during your your high performance uh, efforts. Maybe we can focus on a specific thing like the time that you were the first person to defend your Vegas championship. Can you sum up for us your mental game preparing for a tournament and then in competition? George, the preface is by stating, you know, I spent a lot of time with you guys like George Chekmachoff and Don Rapska and those guys were really well-educated in the sport of archery and also the mechanical part of it. I was one of those guys that grew up, I, I kind of reckoned myself to being more like the driver and not the mechanic. So I didn't pay a whole lot of attention whenever I was a young kid. I was shooting a bow and doing other things. So I wasn't necessarily the very best bow mechanic. And so from that standpoint, you know, I used to laugh the bad word. I used to find amusement in the fact that how technical some of the people that I shot with tried to be on stuff. And I thought, you know what, you, when you're setting up a bow, once you have your bow and you've got the draw link set properly and you've determined what rest you're going to shoot, I said, you only have two adjustments. You only have a knocking point and a center shot. And you see all these different techniques guys would use to try to determine that. And it's like, you know, you can put all kinds of gauges on here. You can start with your bow square, all the other alignment devices. It's still going to be just trial and error. So just take your very best guess. Half the time I'd go just set my bow up. I didn't even have a bow square in my quiver. I'd just stick an arrow on it and hold it and look at it. See, that it looks about right. Because again, all I'm doing is taking my best guess. And my first arrow through paper is going to tell me how good a guess that I made. So I didn't worry about setup so much. I wanted to know, it's like my dad was, a, my dad's a very practical guy. And I used to talk about different things about Aeroflight and all of the stuff. And he, he was a good coach too. And he'd say, hey, uh, Ter, show me any column on your scorecard that says anything about Aeroflight. Mm -hmm. It only pays for how many points you have. And it kind of goes back to when I shot Vegas, I shot the first time I was in 75, I was a senior in high school. I went there and got spanked like a, you know what, and sent home. The next year, I think I finished one point out of first. And the next year is when I had left home, went to work for PSE. And I am living in a, the, the sweet little town of Muhammad, Illinois, which is, I think, had one, one or two gas stations. And, you know, they shut the town down at about nine o'clock. And at the time, PSE had the facility there on main street, but they didn't have a pro shop. And Pete had a vested interest in me doing well. So he came in one day and he says, here's the alarm code. 
and here's the keys to building. So he goes, when you need to shoot, come in here at night. It was a two-story building, and upstairs were all the offices. And the very last big office at the end was engineering. And in the engineering, we had a target on the wall. He goes, come in, open all the doors. I was shooting down the hall between all of the offices, from standing down by his office down to engineering. He goes, just make sure that the door's locked at the bottom. You put a note that you're in shooting. And... Here I was, fresh on my own, so I didn't have a lot of outside distractions. And I would go after work, George, and sometimes I would go in there. I remember sometimes going on the weekends, I'd get up in the morning, I'd go and start shooting. And I'm shooting down this narrow corridor. And you know, I think in retrospect, that's probably what made Vegas that year, that was 78, made it seem so effortless. I'm shooting down this narrow, narrow hall, and I would go in there and shoot. And now I'm starting to hit them well. And so now, of course, it's interesting. And I remember one day being there, shoot and shoot, and I shot and just went on and on. It's like, man, I'm getting hungry. And look at that. So, like, crap, it's dark. I've been in here all day. But I wasn't really missing, and I'm shooting down this narrow hall. We, I flew out to Vegas. That happens to be the First time that I had an actual any time to spend with my wife to be. So I'm in Goo La La Land anyway. And I remember walking into the old Coliseum in Vegas. And it literally looked like when I walked up and stood on the shooting line, we got a guy was shooting 10 yards. It was so open. And I'd been shooting down this corridor for so long that it was kind of like, how, how could you possibly miss? And I think that year, I think I shot a, well, I know I shot 450 the first year. I think Tim Strickland shot a 450 as well. I'm not really paying a whole lot of attention. I'm still so enamored with this beautiful woman that I ended up marrying. And shot a 450 the second day. And I'm still not really paying attention to the scorecard and the, or the scoreboard. Somebody said, you know, you're like six points ahead with one round to go. And it was a 300 round the last day. And I shot about 300 so i think i ended up going to vegas about like eight eight or nine points well i, I tell people i said i said I, I never say this i hope people under, understand i'm not saying that to brag i'm, so I'm going to tell you how much the game changed i says it got to the point where pretty soon that if you didn't shoot a perfect round that you wouldn't be in the shoot off i said and then the son of a gun made the target half the size yeah, I remember. <laughs> and now there's guys like Kyle Douglas that make it where if you miss that, you're not going to win. So it's like I, um, uh, I, I'm in awe of watching the performance all these people are able to. I can't imagine. I'm sure they said the same thing as years go by. I can't imagine how it's going to get a whole lot more accurate than it is because being target is so small. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that um... – you know, in, in other sports and shooting sports, uh, pistol, for example, if they shoot perfect scores, uh, they start making the target smaller. Uh, I don't think we have much uh, room for that right now. We had about, I think, 16 shooters, um, counting the lucky dog, in the shoot down starting Vegas this year. So 15 <laughs> people with a perfect score. And, um, you know, you look at it from that perspective and you realize just what it really takes to stand up there and, and get into that final. But, yeah. you know, if you consider the equipment and the time that you were doing it, um, you know, uh, 
This was the time of four-wheel compound bows, which were super smooth, but the, the style of shooting wasn't the same. You weren't pulling dead into stops. There weren't any stops. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of differences. Uh, release manipulation. What was your, what type of release were you using and, and how did you manipulate it for that era? Well, I, I've always was, I shouldn't say always, I was kind of partial to a thumb activated release. You know, right. I used to shoot the first one that I ever had that wasn't a like rope spike release was the AR hotshot that Keith Stewart, he was one of our archery friends in Texas made. Yeah. And he gave me the prototype as we were getting ready to leave to go to Jay Vermont. Keith and his wife at that time, her name was Ann. You know, they were just a regular family just trying to start a business. And I left there with that release in my pocket. That thing was a lot easier to operate than shooting a dang rope spike. And I went and shot 560 the first three days at the Nationals. I think I shot a 56 on the fourth day and then 560 the last day. So I set the national record with his release. And he always said, you know, that's kind of, that was kind of the shot in the arm for my product. So, and I was glad to be able to do that, but I look at that release now compared to what the releases like, you know, the true ball on the carter and that type of stuff. And it's like, yeah, there's no comparison. Well, on arrows, I shot Vegas that year, Vegas and Cobalt Hall. The, the biggest arrow that I'd ever shot indoors was 1814s. <laughs> right, right. Oh. You don't need line catchers if you put them in the middle. Well, that's true. The best of the best shooters today are certainly benefiting from technology. But the mental game is still the biggest part of our sport. Would you agree? Well, that's, there's no argument there, George, because you, as you know, as most people know, as everyone's seen, there's a lot of people, I should say a lot, there are quite a few people that can do it really well in practice, but when it comes right down to it, and uh, I, I watch, just an amazement, just watching these guys shooting at Vegas, because, you know, when I was shooting for Vegas, the, the purse was a whole lot different than it is now. Sure, absolutely. Um, sure. You know, fifty fifty five thousand uh, dollars next year, I think it'll be. <laughs> Talk about the importance of attitude when you're shooting. Um, you know, you you were famous for having a very steady attitude at events, but um, is that is part of that something you have to do intentively? Do you think? I think so. I think that's also maybe a, a, just a part of your upbringing as well. You know, I, I hope people would believe my parents were super loving, but I mean, I don't know if it was just from our upbringing there or the fact that we were from the South, but, you know, manners goes a long way. Manners still goes a long way. And uh, so, I mean, my upbringing, yeah, my folks, I, they, they did a great job with us. You know, my dad, dad was, he was certainly, he was a Marine. He also, whenever he was out of the, out of the service, then he became a firefighter. And what, before he was designing stuff at PSC, he also, he had, he had a, he had a super aptitude for electronics and electronic circuits. So he was working for World of Two Organ and Piano Company. And he would troubleshoot when they had problems with, things that weren't going quite right. 
So he was, he, he was a great teacher, a very patient man, but it wasn't so much the, you talked about the Marine background having an influence on how we were raised. That wasn't it at all. That was, that was our mama and the being a Southern upbringing, our mama with the wooden spoon <laughs> or the look. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, <laughs> Jay Bars, who had a similar <laughs> upbringing has told me a few stories and <laughs> you know, Jay's mom dot could, uh, could yep. scare them straight with just a single look. So, yep, that, that, yeah, you, and you have to have that. So, and still does to this day. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no doubt. You know, and, and it gets back to family. I mean, your your parents, uh, your your father, of course, a, a great archer in his own right. Uh, your brother, uh, Toby, also a shooter. Um, were you too competitive uh, growing up? Well, Toby's a. I think Toby would have done just as well on the pro circuit had he just had the opportunities that I had to go do it. And our brother, Tim, our brother, Tim, I think was the first person when they started the cub, you know, forever, it was youth and young adult. And then they did the cub where they made a little shorter distance. I think our brother, Tim was the first guy to shoot a 560 in the United States at the, on the cub range. But both of, both of those guys, they both, Toby still shoots quite a bit and does well in the tournaments. And he's a really likes to hunt. Tim hunts some, but they just had other things, the other fashions sure. of things. And I have, I have to admit, I was down not very long ago. I was down in Texas. And, you know, every time that any of the Ragsdale boys are together, there's always numerous world championships. And so we went, Toby works at a Saddle River, which is a really high end gun and archery shop in Conroe and we went in for our repeat world champions our championships and I got beat like a drum so well you know I mean it's it's good to have it's good to have uh yep. a little bit of a, a family rivalry shall we say yeah what are your thoughts about compound bow for the Olympic games for the future oh yeah <laughs> I thought I know Rapska and I talked about that a long time ago, and I thought George and I did. But, you know, to me, to me, the, the compound in the Olympics would have been a natural thing. And, and here's why I made that argument, I think, talking to Don. I said, you know, there, there is absolutely no question in anybody's mind that shooting the recurve bow, no peep, fingers, Olympic style, is a very demanding, very tough way to do it. So laying that out there, there's there's no no argument there. But I said, but you know, whenever we shot, you know, we shot the in the FIDA events, we shot the compound there, and I just sounds selfish, sounds wrong. To me, it was more interesting to watch somebody like. Uh, you know, John Bozzi, um, D. Wild guys who were on the team, Dave Gusson stand up there and just wear the middle out at 70 meters with their compound. To me, that was like, and, you know, the, the recurve shooters, top ones, they do a great job. But to me, it was just more, because it was my sport, but it just seemed more, I was, I was more interested in watching someone really drill the middle consistently. 
Well, I think we can both agree that there's a place for both in terms of um, their individual things. World archery has shown over the last, you know, it's almost 30 years now that compound was allowed in world archery events. They have shown that there's a place for what happens with recurve and what happens with compound and they are different. And, you know, I, I think with, with compound, the people, the spectators do appreciate seeing perfect scores and or near perfect scores. And the drama of a near perfect score is a compelling thing for an audience. And so you can have both without taking away from the other, I think. And I think that's the important uh, thing that people need to remember as efforts are being made to possibly even have uh, the Los Angeles Olympic Games in 2028 have a compound event that it's a different thing than recurve. It doesn't have to be at the expense of recurve. Um, more archers in the games is a good thing for our sport. Oh, sure. No argument. What do you think about the fact that these days we only shoot 50 meters with compound versus the full distance that you were able to shoot, um, you know, 70 meters initially, but you, you know, full feet of rounds before that. Do you have a preference? Do I have a preference for what I would rather see or shoot? Yes. I like this. I like the 70 meter stuff. The, the, feet, the feet around, I, that one wasn't my, necessarily my favorite, just because it's being far. But. <laughs> what do you think about maybe the uh, 80 centimeter face at 70 for a future compound round? Would that be something you might uh, think would be a good idea? I think that wouldn't, that wouldn't be a bad show. When you're shooting a perfect score, Terry, uh, the many times you've done it, what's going in your mind as you're about to execute that last shot? Are you thinking about the score or are you just thinking about shooting one arrow after another? Yeah, uh, that's, as you, as you well know, George, that's the, that's the toughest part because that, you know, I guess right down to those last couple and it's like, then the, the um, sounds terrible to say, the pucker factor gets a lot higher. So, yeah, I try so not you, to, were, you were try personally not aware of it. Yeah, you try not to think about any of those shots. I mean, it's got to be, you know, like it goes back to my dad. It's always, you know, the only arrow you're worried about is the one you got, you're loading your bow right now. You can't worry about the one you just shot. You can't worry about the one the guy next to you is shooting, just the one you're getting ready to shoot. So, but that's easy. That's a, that's a good thing to talk about. That's not always an easy thing to do. So, somewhat famously you actually let down once before uh, an important arrow sort of recomposed yourself and then executed a perfect shot can you share maybe what was in your mind when when you experienced that well as, as you know we know each other a long time george you know there, there's not always a lot of things in my mind but i did remember at vegas that was in 78 last arrow and i remember standing up on a line and it's like you can fool yourself all you want to your body knows that this hey this is it and i even remember drawing back on the last one i always i never try to have any negative thoughts but just thinking as i got ready to draw it back it's like you know this would really stink to miss in front of all these people miss your last blasted arrow so i just try to I try to keep my checklist pretty short you know, come back come to full draw touch into my nose get on the release and get the shot off and the reason I let down on that one is like, you know, I only have that window of opportunity and the longer you hold, and usually that window gets considerably narrower. 
and that's the only reason for letting down. So, sure, yeah, the same just to re- reset the timing. Yeah, I think it was. I think it did the same thing at a month or two later at Cobo Hall on the last arrow of twelve hundred. So, and it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't for dramatic effect. That was for sure. I just wanted to give no. a shot. <laughs> it was dramatic, but it wasn't meant to be. I guess is one way to look at it. Terry, well, you, um, you didn't ask about my very worst memory of Vegas. Oh, go ahead. Not that you play into it, and I couldn't, even, I couldn't even tell you the year, but you know, for the when I first started going there, you know, the it was shot 120 arrows, and so you had a 1200 possible, and that changed in 95. No, yeah, when did it change? Anyway, when it, when did it change? 85 changed to a 85, I think, yeah. Change to the 900 um, yeah. in so 85. somewhere between, we had one in 78 and 79. So somewhere 80 to 85, because I wanted 85 with a 900. But somewhere in between there, I held, I was probably one of the only guys that could stand up and say, you know, I just shot the biggest tournament for the last three days. I shot 119 tens out of 120 shots. And my other arrow was a zero. <laughs> Shot 1190 first day. And it's like, I have a terrible memory. It was the first day of Vegas. And I, I remember being on, I was on target 79 because my third shot went right between the seven and the nine. Cause I got to about half draw and my release rope pull, pulled out and I whacked myself right in the eye. Oof. And <laughs> it was like, so I shoot a 440 the first day, and I remember even thinking then, it's like, okay, now all you can do now is shoot as hard as you possibly can. And I thought, wouldn't it be kind of a neat story to say, you know what, I, I still finished in the money at Vegas shooting a zip. And I shot a 450 the next day and a 300 the last day, and I finished with 1190, and I did not finish on the money. <laughs> but as you said, you you – kept it going i mean you know your attitude was still do the best you could you didn't give up yes sir that's all that's all we can do when we consider this past year terry um and i i think that this you know this next part of the discussion is particularly personal because of michelle's profession and your profession that you've retired from now um this past year has been difficult for everybody in our sport, uh, not to mention, of course, in, uh, in the general population. But um, what are your thoughts in terms of people who are starting to see the situation improve and want to get back into archery right now, just in general terms? Well, George, as you said, it, it looks like things are certainly on upswing and starting to improve in some of our restrictions are being lifted but you know still a matter of just you know maintaining proper social distancing wash your hands cover your face so it still doesn't change anything as far as your practice routine you can still go in there and wear it out night after night or shoot outside and uh social distancing never was a problem for us it was like whether you're doing it by yourself or there's 100 people in the room it's still still you against the round that you're shooting. So I know that there's a lot of people out there that would love to see you and Michelle shooting again someday. Um, the decision to leave the sport came about, I think as a realization that the travel 
and the experience of travel uh, and some of the things that you dealt with when traveling were less than uh, less than wonderful. And um, at, at a certain point, everybody makes a decision as to whether something is worthwhile. Um, the negative side of, of traveling and dealing with things like loud hotels, and, uh, you know, just unpleasant experiences on the road. Uh, that might have been part of uh, your decision-making process there, right? Actually, yeah, George, that was that was probably the, the biggest factor. And uh, but again, I, it sounds terrible. To, it sounds like a oh wow wow poor poor us. I mean, we did it. Pete supported us so well. I mean, we shot for Pete for sneaking up on thirty years. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was it was a good run, and it was by gosh, time to let somebody else go at it. Understandable. Any plans on doing any kind of future work in coaching or anything along those lines? Are you working with any shooters or having any involvement right now? No, not really any plans to do that, George. I mean, certainly that's the kind of stuff you'd always be happy to help people in your way that you can, but. No, we live. We live in a. We live in a little town. I kind of jokingly refer to it as like a Mayberry RFD. We live in a quiet little town of about eight thousand people in western Wisconsin, and we you know we we know each other well. I love people. At the same time, I don't really need to be around too many too many people, and crowds are sure. never active. We have a little 40 acres north of our house, about an hour that, uh, you know, it's like my wife says, you gotta be careful. You know, it's, you know, God calls us to be in community and not to be hermits. <laughs> and so it's, it's pretty easy for me to go up there. And, uh, you know, I still, I, I certainly don't still shoot them as near as accurately, but I still uh, on a, a day when the wind's not blowing and it's nice to put up a fresh 50 yard hunter face and stand out there and, uh, you know, there's moments where it's like, hey, I can still hit them pretty good. <laughs> I have no other, doubt. There's other moments where it's like, you know, they're a really good decision to step away when you did. <laughs> <laughs> so it's archery for enjoyment one, now, huh? One thing in, in closing that I'll tell you, I had talked about I wanted to go shoot one more event, and this was a few years back. And I had decided, by gosh, I always really enjoyed the Big Sky Open. You know, it was never from a number standpoint because of the location, I guess, wasn't the, one of the bigger ones. But it was, you know, Jerry and Tootie Brabeck put it on at Grand Junction, and it was just a fun event to go to. The kids like to go. So it's like I told Sean, I said, you know what? I'm going to go shoot the Big Sky Open. And she, <laughs> she looked at me over, over her book shooting, and she goes, are you sure? I said, yeah, because I was shot shooting in the yard. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting them pretty good. And she goes, well, sweetheart, just something to think about. He goes, say that you go to the Big Sky Tournament and you go out there and you shoot pretty well. <clears throat> and she goes, and you say you heard somebody say, oh, there's Ragsdale. He's still got it. I said, but what if you go out there and you don't have a good event? And she goes, last thing you want to hear is someone say, hey, you see that guy over there? He used to be good. <laughs> so, of course, of course, now I'm going to go shoot the Big Sky Tournament. We drove out there and we made a kind of a little 
weekend or extra vacation out of it. So we went up through Yellowstone and then down. And for some reason, while we were in Yellowstone, I decided that I needed to be on the other side of this little river to take a picture. And I tried to go across a log, fell off there head first and landed on my left shoulder. And got up the next morning, driving through the mountains in Wyoming, woke up in an absolute blizzard. And I can't even lift my arm up because my shoulder is hurting so bad. So as we're driving along, all I can hear in the back of my mind is, hey, you see that guy over there? <laughs> he used to be good. <laughs> so we get to the big sky. I uh, wasn't able to even play the first day. I shot the second day. I shot okay. And so then we started driving back home. And I was disappointed. So we drove for an hour or two in complete silence. And then finally, my much wiser, very sweet wife reached over, grabbed me, and she goes, do you have it out of your system now? <laughs> I said, yep, sweetheart, I got that out of my system. So won't be back on the shooting line anytime, but we do plan on, we hope maybe this next year we can get to Vegas, one of the places I'd love to go see, see these guys shoot, guys and gals. Well, I guarantee you that you are going to be one of the most welcome people there, you and Michelle, because um, everybody in our sport would love to see you again. And I know personally I would. And I know that I speak for a lot of our listeners when I say that too, Terry. So yeah. let's well, look well, forward I, to seeing you and Michelle at a tournament sometime soon, even if it's not with a bow. Uh, we're just going to look forward to seeing you again there. Yeah, brother, sounds good. <laughs>